We're going to talk about the reality of the veil or the curtain, as Hebrews chapter 10 calls it. It says that we should go beyond the curtain. We should push beyond the curtain. But then Leviticus 16, uh, verse 2, uh, we're warned. It says, tell Aaron, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, which is what Hebrews 10 calls the curtain. Tell Aaron at any time never to come inside the veil. Aaron's the high priest. Moses is who God's talking to in Leviticus chapter 16. And this is the beginning of the passage that deals with the day of atonement. In Leviticus 16, the warning there is that you, Aaron's two sons, two of Aaron's sons, firstborn, secondborn sons, have in the previous passage, they have gone into uh, the, the, the tabernacle with fire that was not prescribed by God, that was not set on fire by God, that wasn't holy and sanctified. They made their own fire and they went in uninvited without um, going in obedience to what God had commanded them as if they could irreverently come in whenever they wanted to do religion the way they wanted to do religion. And they found that that was not good for their health because God immediately struck them both down dead. God was illustrating. He was making clear to people that I am holy and you don't just come casually walking into my presence and think you're going to survive. And it wasn't so much that God was being mean and wrathful. It was that God is holy and you can know uh, you have no better chance walking into the presence of God on your own initiative, on your own will, with your own self-righteousness than you do to get into a space capsule and fly to the sun and pop out and walk around on the sun. It won't work for you. You can't do it. You, you, you can't walk into a nuclear reactor, okay, where there's radi- radiation and all this stuff's going on and, and, just, and just hang out there and think it's going to be well for you. You'll be, you'll be killed. Not because it's mean, just because you can't survive in the presence of that. And unholy, unclean people can't survive in the presence of a holy God. And so because of that, God has established a barrier out of his grace to say, stay out Not because I don't want you, not because I don't want you to have a relationship to know me, but if you come on your own initiative, your own self-righteousness, you'll be destroyed because I'm holy and you can't survive in my presence. So tell the high priest that's going to serve on the half of the nation not to just come wandering in and push beyond the veil. And he says, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, what's the mercy seat? The ark is... Again, is uh, is a box, and it is um, a wooden box covered with gold. If you've uh, if you never saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, you need to go back and see that movie. Um, it's not like biblically faithful necessarily, but it, it is kind of interesting because it's it's all about them trying to find the the ark. Nobody knows where it is right now, Ark of the Covenant, um, and so that's what the whole thing's about. And you kind of see what it might have looked like, and um, they did a good job artistically with that element of it. Nonetheless. The Ark of the Covenant in the box was the Ten Commandments, and it was the place behind the veil where God's presence rested on top of the Ark. And so on the lid of the Ark were two seraphim angels, and they were looking down at the lid of the box, actually almost as if they're looking, gazing through the lid to what's inside the box, which was the law of God, the Word of God, uh, the Ten Commandments. And so That box was a reminder of, I am a holy God. Here's my law and the covenant, the agreement we have, you and me. And if you're going to 
be in a right relationship with me, you've got to live according to these rules. And if you break them, then you're going to be judged for that. And so the only way that we can have a right relationship is if God, either the nation's perfect or God provides a way for them to deal with their uncleanliness and their unholiness and their imperfection, which is what God did. And he provided a way through the shedding of blood. And so one time a year, the high priest, Aaron, at this point, would come into the presence of God beyond the veil, would put blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the lid, which is the mercy seat where God's presence would rest. Blood for himself to deal with his own sin. And then he would go back out. He would sacrifice one of the two goats on the Day of Atonement, come back in and then put blood, sprinkle it seven times on the lid, on the top, so that when God looks down through and rests upon the, the mercy seat, he can grant mercy because the blood is covering the law. And instead of looking through to see the violations that we have committed, he looks through and he sees his blood, the blood that's there to represent that one day there will be a righteous one who will come and his blood will be shed on behalf of the nation. And we know that that was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so he says, tell Aaron at any time to not go in the holy place inside the veil because before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. My presence is going to be there and he can't come in because of my presence. Which leads to the, the, the title here, Living Beyond the Curtain. If God's presence is on the other side of it, how can we have a right relationship with God when there's a barrier between us and God? And God has clearly put that barrier there so that we would know that we cannot just casually walk into his presence. Think about in your lives. What are the things that, you know, all of us have been confronted with different barriers, different things that, that keep us from, from going to places maybe we want to go. And, and often barriers are used to keep us safe. And that's the case in this, um, in this context. But, but the theme of the whole book is the reality that we're unclean and that somehow God has made that abundantly clear in all the elements of the tabernacle all of them are driving home the same point. All of the sacrifices, the five different offerings that are to be given, the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the trespass offering and the sin offering and all of the different feasts, the Passover feast, and the Pentecost feast, the Feast of Booth and the, and the Feast of Trumpets and all these different feasts, all of them are pointing to the same reality. All of these things are all pointing back to the same reality. And the reality is that we cannot have a right relationship with God in our present state can't do it it's not an option so how do we move beyond the veil is there hope beyond the veil is there a way for us to know god beyond the veil the two great summary truths in the book of leviticus are these first of all we see god's uh, people are sinful so they are unable to approach god without a sacrifice for their sins there has to be a sacrifice for their sins for them to be able to come into the presence of God. The other great truth we find uh, in this book is that God's people are distinct. They are not only the first half, the first 16 chapters deals with how unholy people could come in the presence of God. And then the second, 17 on, the rest of the book is all about practically what does it look like to be a, a, a distinct people, to be a holy people, to be a, a people set apart to live for God. So the book, multiple times in it, says that God is holy. And so if we're going to have a right relationship with him, and if we're going to represent him as his people, then not only is God holy, but we are to be holy like God. So 
part of it is talks about how we positionally can be right before God. The second part is about how we practically can live a, a holy, clean life representing God as a distinct people that, that can illustrate the goodness and the love and the, and the, the um, joy of knowing the one true God in a right relationship to the world out there that's seeking uh, to find saviors and a lot of other things that are not healthy. And so understanding those two truths, I want to remind you of a few things. Relevance for today. How is this relevant for today? Why is this book relevant? And this is going to help us kind of review some of the truths in this book. Well, as we've gone through this book, as we've, as we've studied through it, we've learned many things uh, and been confronted with many truths. And so here are some of them um, for you right now. We gained and we gain a clearer understanding of God's mind in his holy nature. We gain a clear understanding of God's mind, of, of what God thinks regarding um, how we can know him, his grace, his love, his mercy, that he would provide a way for us to know him, that he would illustrate his wrath by giving him simple things like, I want you to build an altar. And on that altar, I'm going to set it on fire. And this is a place you're going to go every day. You're going to bring sacrifices before me. And, and you're going to begin the day and you're going to end the day with a burnt offering. And at different times, you're going to bring offerings for different purposes and different reasons. And, and, and the reason why you have that is to understand my wrath. And then you're going to go in from there. There's going to be a water um, thing called a laver. And it's going to be full of, of water that, that the priests use for cleansing. And also worshipers would use for cleansing to be ceremonial clean. And then you go within the tabernacle. And there's going to be a uh, table of shoe bread, S-H-E w or showbread um and the showbread is going to have 12 loaves once for each tribe and then there's going to be a lampstand and that's the only light that's allowed in there is the lampstand and that lampstand is going to represent eventually it's going to help us understand that christ is the light of the world and then there's going to be a little altar the golden altar and that's going to have some some of the embers and the in the um from the brazen altar with special uh incense that's prescribed only be mixed for use in and burnt for use in the tabernacle and that's the only time the only place you use this and they're going to place it in that as the smoke rises from that that's going to picture the prayers of the saints rising to god and it's going to create an environment in there that reminds them of the holy presence of god and then in the holy of holies there is no natural light there's only the little bit of light that comes in from the holy place with the lampstand and then the only other light in there is the light of the shekinah glory of god god's presence in there will illuminate the holy of holies and it also will consume anybody that comes wandering in there without the blood. And so we learn some amazing things about God. And we learn some amazing things about his holy nature. Fifteen times the New Testament quotes the book of Leviticus. Fifteen different times. Um, in the book of Leviticus, there is no other book in the Bible. It's kind of funny. It's the one that we're often the most scared of. But there's no other book in the Bible that has as many direct quotes from God. Now, we talk a lot about, you maybe hear people talking about, you know, well, my Bible, we've got the red letter edition, you know, and, and so I just focus on the red letters, and that's the words of Jesus, right, in the New Testament, the Gospels. And so a lot of people, they, they, they when it, you come to the red letters, you better really listen. I mean, if they're black, then, you know, listen. But if they're red, then really listen. Now, the whole Bible is God's word and has been given to us uh, by the inspiration of God. He used people to write his inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Uh, it's not just a 
compilation of writings by a bunch of random guys that love God, but I know had all their issues and all of their biases and prejudices and, and bigotry and this and that and whatever all was filtered into that. And so we got to get through all that to find out what's the real. No, no, it's the whole thing is the word of God and is inerrant and is truthful and is is reliable. But there are some things that it's just it is interesting to look when Jesus says certain things just to hear the heart of Jesus. If I was listening to Jesus, and he was saying these things that he spoke the whole word. Yes. But what would Jesus say? Well, look at the Old Testament. You want to see quotes from God? Look at Leviticus. There's no other book that has more quotes from God. Why would we not want to hear what God has to say? In fact, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, I just read you, is a quote from God. Tell Aaron not to come into the holy place beyond the veil uh, without the blood or he will die. Uh, Secondly, we understand that we gain a clear understanding of the unholiness and the uncleanness of humanity. That we are, we are unclean and we are unholy. And so there, there's two issues there. Those are separate words with separate meanings. Okay, Unholiness is the fact that we have sinned against God. And because of our sinfulness, we, we are now corrupt and unholy and unable to go in the presence of God. Uncleanliness also means, that's the second part of that, is it's not, it's not always, we're not unclean just because we did bad things. We're unclean because we live and dwell in a state. We are born with a nature that is not fit to be in the presence of God unless God provides a way for us to come into his presence, unless he provides a way for us to be protected from his holy presence. Then we in our unclean state, we can't get into the presence of God. The reason people go to hell is for two reasons, not one, two reasons. Okay, some people say, well, it's projecting Christ. Well, you, okay, yeah, you can say that. But beyond that, there's two primary reasons why people would go to hell. Why? Well, one is because they've sinned against God and they need to pay for their sins. And God is not just if he doesn't deal with sin. He has to punish it in the same way that we would not want judges on our benches around our country you know, that decide who's a murderer and who's not a murderer, not based on the evidence, but based upon who they like, who they don't like, or who has the most money or who doesn't, or who's this or who's that. They they should be impartial. Justice is blind and is impartial in ways, uh, whether people are right or wrong or guilty or not guilty, based upon the evidence, not based upon their preferences. And God is not a God of partiality. God is impartial and he is completely just and he is holy and so he judges our sin he looks at all of our lives and he weighs us and we all are left wanting because we've sinned we must be punished for our sin so one reason people are judged and spend eternity in hell is because they have not repented of their sins and they must pay for the penalty of their sins the second reason is because they're just not good enough to get into heaven it's not what they did or didn't do so much as they're just not good enough. We're all born with a sinful nature. We aren't good enough. We're not righteous. We're not 100%. Uh, we don't have 100% of the goodness of God in any of us at any point in our life, okay? From conception to the grave, it, it, you, there at no point are you without a sinful nature, which is the reason for the virgin birth. We'll talk about that next week. Is the critical need for us to have... Um, we, we, we have a sinful nature. And so Jesus comes being righteous, the only righteous one, and he dies on the cross for us after living a perfect and righteous life. And so he solves those two problems by paying the penalty and providing for us a righteousness that we don't have. Okay, 
how do you know that? Well, one of the things in Leviticus is again and again, we're reminded that these animals that are sacrificed have to be unblemished. They have to be without flaw. They have to be perfect. Why? Because it's a picture because there would be one who would ultimately deal with sin and he would be perfect. He would die in our place. And so we gain a clear understanding of unholiness and unclean, the uncleanness of humanity. 125 occasions Leviticus in, uh, indicts mankind for uncleanness or instructs us of how we must be purified. 125 different times in the book of Leviticus, we are confronted with the reality we're unclean and we need to be purified. Over 50 times, Leviticus repeats the phrase, I am the Lord and I am holy. I'm holy. I am, I'm holy. I'm holy. Thirdly, we understand that we need to gain, and we, this book helps us um, gain or see the importance of, but gain uh, an understanding of the importance and the wonder of the cross of Jesus. Leviticus is full of beautiful types that point to Jesus and illuminate the New Testament with fuller meaning. Like John the Baptist, for instance. Uh, John the Baptist is standing on the, the shore of uh, the Jordan River, baptizing and preaching preaching about one who will come and his winnowing fork will be in his hand. He's going to be gathering wheat and he's going to gather wheat for the barn and he's going to take the chaff and he's going to take it to be thrown in the fire to be destroyed. And so he's referring to one who's going to come. And in the middle of the sermon, Jesus comes walking down the shore and he sees him and John the Baptist notes, hey, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the introduction to Jesus. That's the, you know, hey guys, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. This is the moment where Jesus bursts onto the scene as a man and he begins his ministry that leads to the cross. And in that moment, it begins with the proclamation of the reality of that he is the sacrificial one that's coming. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Incredible moment. And the Bible is full of those. Leviticus particularly is full of those. Most notably, the book of Hebrews just covers lots. We're going to look at a few in a moment from the book of Hebrews. Fourthly, we gain a clear understanding of all of the all encompassing command to love the Lord your God with all of our heart, mind and soul. Probably uh, I've been through the book of Leviticus in the past. And probably the most um, interesting thing for me this time through that I haven't seen quite in the same way in the past is the reality that everything in our lives, I mean, in the the lives of an Israelite, was informed by their worship to God. I mean, it was impossible, inconceivable. It was, there's no possible way you could begin to have a right relationship with God with a weekly hat-tipping to God, weekly worship experience. Occasionally, a couple times a month, maybe we'll sacrifice, maybe we'll pray to God, maybe we'll do... No, no, every moment of every day of everything in their life was to be leveraged, was to, was to be an opportunity, a teachable moment for parents to their children and for adults to be reminded and for every, for the nation to be reminded that they are called to be a holy people because they have been called by a holy God to be his people and he has made a way. And so everything in their life must be defined by their relationship with him, not by their relationship to anybody else. And so that reality is just beautifully laid out 
through the sacrificial system, the five offerings I mentioned earlier, the seven feasts, uh, the instructions of what they're supposed to eat and what they can and cannot eat, what they cannot, can and cannot wear, how they're to dress, what they're to put on their bodies, what, how they're to, to carry themselves, what's the definition of marriage, who they can marry and who they cannot marry, their understanding and the engagement of their sexuality all of that is defined by God and is informed by God. And anything that's outside of that is, is intolerable and a violation of the holiness of God. And by the way, I would, I would argue that that's true today. That, that, that definition, those definitions don't evolve and change. And they're, they're still true. That is all defined by God. Not only um, what they eat, what they wear, marriage, understanding of sexuality. They're farming. How you farm, God tells you how to do that. How you rest, how you work your week. God tells you how to do it. God has laid everything out. Everything is defined. The rhythms of your life, what you do with your money, not just 10% of it, but arguably 30% of it was used for the worship of God and animals you're sacrificing and temple taxes and other things. All these different things are all about their worship to God, their relationship to God, how they relate to God. Everything about them was to leverage, to, to remind them, no matter where they turned, that God has called us to know him and to love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul. Jesus added in the New Testament with all of our strength. All of who we are is to be leveraged. Do we live our lives that way? No, we, we, we don't. We're just kind of like, yeah, man, Jesus died and crossed for our sins. And so, you know, I, you know, I try to be at the church raise, you know, occasionally. I try to pray before a meal here and there. I try to give a little bit. I try to do it. You know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to this. I'm trying to that. I'm trying to that. Wait, wait. Again, how far are we going to get trying stuff, number one? And number two, at what point do we not realize that Jesus has given us all in exchange for our nothing, but he's not looking for part of our nothing. He's looking for all of our nothing. And until we're willing to give him all of our messed up, jacked up, kind of confused, whatever lives in exchange for his everything, then we're not really getting this love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. And that was the, the, the truth that in an elementary ABCs, simple colors way, God was trying to teach his people in the Old Testament that they would understand it more clearly in the New Testament having a right relationship. We are not defined by what we do, what we wear, what we eat, all of those things anymore. We're defined by Christ. But the reality of being his changes everything we do. And so it might affect what I eat. It might affect what I wear. It might affect, there's a lot of things it might affect, but it's not because I'm trying to gain righteousness or be right before God because of the things. It just means that I'm willing to lay it all before God and say, God, I will do whatever you want because I want to honor you in everything I do. And so I want you that to be defining my life most clearly. The other couple truths here. We see uh, we gain a foundational understanding of a just and righteous society. What does it look like really to have a just and righteous society? Lots of talk right now about how we are an incredibly divided nation and and how you know it, how divided we are and all this stuff and everybody believes these people believe that and all these people. Uh, it's confusing. And yet there's a constant, one of the mantras of the uh, talking heads that undergirds uh, what most of them believe, whether they say it or not, and uh, whether they think it's popular or not, but they, they now they're more and more blatant over it. And that is that n- religion is no help 
to humanity. And all it does is destroy and and uh, create wars and create conflict and create problems. And so if we just got rid of all religion, we would have a better place. We'd have a better world. We'd have a better. And I would argue we would have an incredibly unjust and unrighteous society. And all you would find is more injustice and more unrighteousness. It doesn't mean that all religions are equal and it doesn't mean that all religions are helpful. But just because many of them are destructive and it cause a lot of problems, and I would include atheism and secular humanism as a religion, by the way, because it is a belief system of faith, not proven. And so atheism and, and uh, evolution and all of that stuff is, is again, is a, is a belief system of, that is a faith-driven belief system. All of those have implications. More people have been killed because of secular humanism, atheism uh, manifested in communism and other socialistic, Marxistic uh, philosophies, case in point, Cuba. Uh, more people have been killed because of that than have been killed even by Muslim terrorists and Muslim wars. And certainly, by far, more in those two camps than all of the Christians that were supposedly, supposed Christians that, that shamefully uh, murdered uh, and killed many people during the crusades or the conquistadors in south america which there's some things that were bad that were done under the name of christ but numerically when you put the numbers against each other they don't even begin to compare number one and number two that was not an accurate representation of christ in any way shape or imagination okay no way but back to the original point a clear understanding of god's word and leviticus for that matter reveals to us the foundational understanding of a just and righteous society and how we relate to one another how we're to live holy how we're to be just and how we deal with our neighbors and other people. We should be righteous and, and gracious and kind and considerate. And if we violate something, if in any way we have sinned against anybody, we must go above and beyond to make sure that we repay whatever it is that we cost them because of our negligence, whether we knowingly or unknowingly hurt somebody else, it matters to a holy God. And you can't just say, well, it doesn't really matter. Well, they hurt somebody else. Well, they deserved it. Well, they're this. Well, they're that. You can make all the excuses you want. But one of the five offerings God gave was a trespass offering. And that was to deal with when we trespassed against God and against another person, we were to go back and make that right and to make sure that there's no hindrance between us and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, much less of our, our neighbors, that we would give anybody a reason to think less of God because of how we have resisted represented him in an unjust and unrighteous way and so this helped us know how in society man we can really be a loving and um and gracious and just and righteous people but uh the last and greatest truth is we gain a foundational understanding of the cost of sin a foundational understanding of the cost of sin of guilt the need for a substitutionary death, that somebody would die in our place. The need for atonement. Again, that word means covering. The need that, that, our, that our sins would be covered, that somebody would come and would wipe away, would take care of, and would cover our sins. And a need to, uh, it also gives us foundational understanding of future prophetic events, most notably the, the coming of Christ that we celebrate this season. And then the death of burial and resurrection of christ and even the second coming of christ all those things we are given insights into all of these expose a god-given desire in us all of these things leveraged together expose a god-given desire in us to push beyond the veil 
beyond the curtain to know that there is life there is something beyond there that we want that we want to find that we want to get there that we want to know and in the same way all of us feel like we we all sense intrinsically that barrier that we never could really be good enough to get in the presence of god yet god has made a way that we could come into that and so we have the sense of there's something god has put the bible says eternity in our hearts and so there's a sense in us that god has exposed this desire to push beyond the veil the curtain to know god the God whom we have been created for. And there is something more. There's a sense in all of us that there's got to be something more than we experience. And that's why we go on the relentless search. August, Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And so this is the reason why the psalmist says in chapter 84 of Psalms, uh, book or 84 Psalm, verse 1, it says this, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. David was cut off from Jerusalem in the tabernacle and he was unable to be there. And while he was separated because of conflict and and safety purposes and whatever, and he's wandering in the wilderness, he would think back and he would think, man, how I would just long to be right now in the presence of god in the tabernacle and he's not talking in the presence of the the unveiled god but he's talking in the presence of the manifestation of god over the ark of the covenant behind the veil in the tent set up in the middle of the nation that's what he's talking about and even the memory of that place he knew that's where god is and i want to be close to god and i'm gonna cut off and i'm in the wilderness and i know god's everywhere but i want to be where he's manifested his presence and i long for that man i would just love to be back in the presence of god man if we would just where's that heart desire in our lives revelation chapter 15 verse 5 says this after this i looked in the sanctuary of the tent again the tabernacle is a simple earthly illustration of a place that really exists in heaven on a far grander more magnificent scale and so what was built on earth was a temporary earthly version of what is a heavenly reality okay so the the building plans for the the tabernacle and eventually the temple that would be built are all in heaven and that's what he's referring to in revelation they're not talking about the physical earthly stuff they're talking about the heavenly one and so he says after this i looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues just judgment sickness clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest and one of the four living creatures, so these crazy-looking creatures that are all indicative of, they're representing the holiness of God, and there's different symbolism and different things behind there, and different truths we learn from them, but nonetheless, there's these creatures that, that he has trouble describing. But they're there, and they gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke and with the glory of god and from his power they were sent out the sanctuary was filled with smoke and the glory of god how do our lives change when we just slow down enough and we we turn our phones off 
We log out of whatever social, whatever we're in, TV, television, conversation, whatever, and we just close our eyes for a moment and we begin to envision what is reality in heaven right now. And we start to think about these incredible images that no cinematography and no computer-generated graphics and no, can begin to even compare to the sights, the sounds, the smell, the presence, the, the, the shaking of the threshold of the temple, the ground quaking beneath our feet, the sound of rushing waves and oceans as God speaks forth his wrath and his love and he displays his glory. And yet we... All we can think about is this temporal world. It's where we want to live. The most important thing to talk to people that we know and we love and people that we don't know so well but we should love because God loves them is who won or didn't win the election or the game or the this or the that or what we do want or don't want for Christmas or what we're going to do. I mean, that's the stuff that matters to us. Where's the people of God that know God that want to push beyond the veil? And because of what they've seen on the other side, Nothing can be the same. It, it informs everything. Changes. It's a game changer. Everything's different. Because of that reality. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Tells us. We read it, and then I'm going to show you this. Hebrews 4. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the rites, but the heavenly things themselves. You can flip to Hebrews while I'm reading this because I'm going to read several verses from there. With better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into the heavens itself, heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then he goes on to say in in, uh, previous verses, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest he's talking about jesus who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast to our confession remember the high priest wore on his shoulders two plaques one that had the name of six of the tribes of israel one that had the names of the other six of the tribes of israel and then he had on the front of his chest a breastplate um, and on that breastplate had 12 jewels and each one of represented the tribes of the nation of israel and so when he would go into and sacrifice on their behalf, go into the holy place once a year with the, the blood of the goat and the bull for his own sin, goat for their sins. When he would confess sins on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat would be moved. All of those times he has with him, the, the, he carries on his shoulders the nation of the people of God. He carries on his shoulder the people of God. And close to his heart are the people of God. But he is a sinful man as he does this. But Jesus comes, not born of the lineage of Aaron, but he comes connected to Melchizedek, a priest who didn't have a beginning and didn't have an end. He's an eternal high priest who dwells forever. That's who Jesus is. But yet he has us on his shoulders and on his heart. And when we talked about the Day of Atonement and how the night before, as the high priest was preparing and trying to stay awake to go through all of the rituals and things he was going to do the next day, all of the other priests would be around him trying to keep him awake. Wake up, high priest. Sir, high priest, wake up, wake up. 
trying to help him as he recites and memorizes and goes back over Leviticus 16 and other passages that were relevant to what he was going to do on behalf of the nation so that he would precisely and beautifully and perfectly without error and without invoking the wrath of God because of making a mistake, perfectly sacrifice on behalf of the nation so that their sins would be forgiven. But we have a greater high priest because Jesus stayed up the night before his crucifixion and he prayed on behalf of us. God, is there any other possible way that we can avoid this, that we can that we can deal with the sin of humanity? Is there any other way? And God obviously said no. And he said, "Okay, well, not my will, but yours be done. And then he went up to check on the disciples who were sleeping while the greater high priest was awake he said, could you guys not just watch with me for an hour? You can't stay up and pray with me for an hour. It's kind of a tough night for me. You guys can't, can't hang with me? And then he goes the next day, and he goes where only he could go to not just an earthly temple, but providing forgiveness for us through a heavenly temple, not temple not made of hands. And so because of all this, Jesus, the Son of God, we need to hold fast to our confession. Hey, cowboy up, strengthen up. Let's not get all flimsy on, you know, man, I'm just, I've just been a bad way. I am pray like I need, and I'm not this, and I'm not that. Come on, hold fast to your confession of hope. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He gets it. He understands, okay? He came here to live with 100% humanity while being 100% God. And he understands what you're going through. You will never suffer to the extreme that Jesus suffered. So understand, there's nothing you go through guilt depression, struggles, whatever, that he cannot empathize and understand in where you're at. He understands. He can empathize with those things. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. The only difference between him and Jesus and us is that he knows the full weight of temptation. See, we, we tend to give in at some point. Jesus never did. So he has been tempted beyond our temptations because he's been tempted to the point where he never sinned. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help in our time of need. I, I want to read a couple quotes to you from uh, A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God. There's a chapter called Removing the Veil. And in there, he says some truths that I think are worth looking at. He says, everything in the New Testament accords with the Old Testament picture. Ransom men need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies. God wills that we should push on into his presence and live our whole life there. He goes on to say the greatest fact of the tabernacle was that Jehovah was there. The presence was waiting within the veil. Similarly, the presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. According to to, uh, its teachings, we are in the presence of God positionally. And nothing is said about the need to experience. And he's talking about the teachings of, the, of Christians today. We miss something. We, we're all about positional righteousness and you know, theological. Yeah, we're right before God. So positionally, we're, and we're, it's intellectual. And nothing is said about the need to experience the presence actually. The fiery urge that drove men like uh, McShane, who was a preacher in Scotland, um, is wholly missing. And the present generation of Christian measures itself by this imperfect rule. He goes on to say, it's intellectualism. It takes the place of a burning zeal. We are satisfied to rest in our judicial possessions. And for the most part, we bother ourselves very little about the absence of personal experience. If 
I could tell you anything this morning, I would like to say that there's far more than understanding theologically, doctrinally, what the book of Leviticus is about. Okay, I, my goal here and the goal of this passage, the goal of this book, the goal of this study was not to just say, now, now we understand a little more of the background of Jesus dying on the cross. So we, we're all smarter now. Isn't that great? No, it's for us to go, hey, we should have a renewed passion to go beyond the veil, to live in the presence of God, to live in reality of the fact that we have access to the presence of God, not just once a year, but daily, moment by moment, we have access to the presence of God. In fact, we are now the temple of God. God's spirit now indwells us even better. We have the presence of God within us. And yet we're like, that's interesting. Instead of, wow, God, that holy God that they're afraid of that killed Ananias and Sapphira when they went in with unholy fire, that God that, that, um, that would, would judge sin and, and, and wow, that God is indwelling. Yeah, he's indwelling you. If you're a believer, you repent of your sins, you trust in Christ. Last quote. He says, uh, the church waits for the tender voice of the saint who has penetrated the veil and has gazed with, it, with inward eye upon the wonder that is God. And yet thus to penetrate, to push in sensitive living experience into the holy presence is the privilege open to every child of God. For with the veil removed by the rending of Jesus' flesh, with nothing on God's side to prevent us from entering, why do we tarry without? Why do we waste our time doodling on the other side when God has, through Jesus, death on the cross, saying it is finished, committing his spirit to God. I don't know if you knew this, but in that very moment, the Bible tells us that the veil was torn from the very top to the very bottom and separated. And the way was made open, not just in reality, spiritually, but even physically, because we're not smart enough sometimes to figure it out any other way, God illustrated that it is open. Come into my presence. Why do we consent to abide all of our days just outside the Holy of Holies and never enter at to look upon God? We sense the call is for us, but still we fail to draw near. It is the veil of our fleshly fallen nature living on unjudged within us, uncrucified, unrepudiated. It is the close woven veil of the self life, which we have truly never truly acknowledged of which we have been secretly ashamed. And which for these reasons, we have never brought to the judgment of the cross. What is the veil in your life? I mean, clearly the veil is there because of our sin, but the veil is more than that. It's, it's our flesh. What is it in your life that you think separates you from God? What is it in your life you feel like just you, you, you really you can't see God clearly because of this issue? This thing that there's some unforgiveness that you just can't let go of. There's some bitterness that maybe you've hurt somebody and you but or you've done some things and you just you can't own up. You don't want to be honest about it. there's what's really going on. In my life. Here's what's really happened. And I, I'm not I am not going to go And it's stubbornness and pride keeps you. From the veil. I mean, God has said, if you just repent of that, let go of that, I have fully accepted you. You're fully, it doesn't matter what you've done to anybody or what anybody's done to you, it doesn't really matter. I'm fully accepting you in Christ. What is it that would keep you out? Your identity, your worth, your value, who you are. I mean, teenagers, hello, young people, hello. I mean, who you are, I'm trying to find myself, I'm trying to discover myself. Who you are is defined by Christ and will never be found outside of the other side of the veil. Walk inside step inside how do we know we can do that well this is the final verse therefore brothers we 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts having been sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Goes on to say, let us not forsake because of this the gathering of the saints together to come together to remind ourselves of this great reality because we will so quickly forget it. Everything's different now. Everything's different now. God has made a way for you to enjoy his presence. And for you, if Christianity is all intellectualism and all is about checking a couple boxes and I walked that aisle or I said the confession or I, I asked Jesus to come, I prayed the prayer, and then I was baptized and I've done the thing and I try to live a good life and I try to do this and I try to... I mean, if, if, if your definition of your relationship with Christ is all defined by the things that you have done, then you're not getting it. You have believed possibly a... Uh, a false gospel instead of that Jesus has provided everything. And so you're coming with your nothing to God's everything and you're giving all of your nothing to God. That's repentance. And you're embracing all of his everything that is faith in what he has provided, his substitutionary atonement, his death on the cross for us, his righteousness that he gives us, the inheritance he gives us in heaven, all of these things, and the privilege and the joy of being in the presence of God, not intellectually, but I mean, like we can pray and talk to eternal holy God who right now there's smoke in the temple as glory's filling it. And there's angels being gathered with bowls of wrath ready to pour out on the earth. And that God has invited us to have a simple legitimate, personal, authentic relationship and ongoing conversation with him. And that changes everything. And we need to push beyond the veil in our relationship with Christ and enjoy the presence that has been opened wide through the blood of Christ. Let's pray.